The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Want to fearlessly explore your creative spirit? Join artist Susie K. Edwards for Path of the Butterfly, a weekend workshop at Omega Institute's beautiful campus in Rhinebeck, New York, May 24th through 26th. Experiment with a variety of art forms, engage in mindfulness, walking, and silent meditation, and discover a new and free-flowing creative vision. This workshop is for beginners and professional artists. Learn more at eomega.org thrive. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. From Spirituality and Health Magazine, I'm Rabbi Rami, and this is Essential Conversations. Before we meet today's guest, let me tell you about another podcast I host called Conversations on the Edge. Conversations on the Edge introduces you to a motley crew of thinkers with offbeat and bold perspectives on spirituality, community, and culture. You can find the show on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Spotify. If you enjoy Essential Conversations, you will love Conversations on the Edge just as much. Our guest today, Spring Washam, is a well-known meditation teacher who's practiced and studied Buddhism and Buddhist philosophy in both the Theravadan and Tibetan schools for the last 20 years. In addition to being a teacher, she's also a shamanic practitioner and has studied indigenous healing practices for over a decade. She's the founder of Lotus Vine Journeys, an organization that blends indigenous healing practices with Buddhist wisdom. Her writing and teaching have appeared in many online journals and publications such as Lion's Roar, Tricycle, and Belief.net. Her new book is A Fierce Heart, Finding Strength, Courage, and Wisdom in Any Moment. Spring has an essay in the February, January, February issue of Spirituality and Health magazine, and the essay deals with diversity and spiritual community. Spring Washam, welcome to Essential Conversations. Thank you. I'm happy to be here with you. I'm really happy to talk to you. Before we get into the book, I'd like you to talk to us a little bit about the topic of your essay on diversity and spiritual community. What? Yes, you know, I was um, I was reflecting a lot about uh, communities, being that I'm in so many different types of spiritual communities. I have a yoga community. I have a Buddhist community. I have a teacher community. I have a singing community. Um, and the topic, what I was sharing about was how this topic of diversity and inclusivity is coming up in every single community. And it was kind of about how communities deal with that topic. They either suppress it or it kind of can take over. It just depends on the leadership and how we hold um, people's experiences and their suffering and within and in the wider community. So it's a short essay, but I think it's just thought provoking. Let, Let me ask you a question. This is a little off the wall maybe, but I was invited 
to give a short presentation to an African-American pastors group. And I was pitching them on a, on a program that the place I was working at at the time was doing with photography and African-American churches. And in our conversation, the idea of, or the, the topic of spirituality came up in all the different meditation groups in the city and et cetera. And they said, you know, that's just not our thing. And the way they said it was, it, it wasn't that, well, that's not our thing because we're pastors. They said, it's not our thing because we're African-American. And I, I didn't get that. And then they said, so I asked them to expand on that. And what I heard, if I heard them correctly, was we have too many real problems to deal with. We don't have the luxury of dealing with you know, meditation issues and what they considered new age problems. What's your take on that? Well, I think a lot of the things are changing around who is meditation for and and some of that is just how it's been packaged and how the people who are, you know, I remember when Time Magazine, it was like a big thing that they had a cover issue on meditation. Well, then on the cover, they have a supermodel with blonde hair, blue eyes. So for a lot of people, it doesn't feel like it's helpful for them. It seems something that's very distant. And one of the things I think that was a little bit left out of my bio was that I founded a center in downtown Oakland called the East Bay Meditation Center. And that's where I really learned about how language, communication, and packaging of certain things is either inclusive or exclusive. All of that matters. And so when we were in Oakland and we were teaching uh, meditation classes, we were attracting huge groups of communities of color, LGBT, transgender. You know, we were we were really focused on all beings. And I write about that in the article. And we were really translating these teachings in a way that makes sense. You know, mindfulness, awareness, living with ethical conduct and integrity. This is in our bones. We all know this. That's not for one group and not for another. It's just the way it's been transferred, I guess, is a way from Asia to the U.S. And who carries it? Who is the spokesperson who speaks about it, who writes about it? That becomes challenging. Um, and so this is, I think, a broader conversation about inclusivity, diversity, how language, how communities exclude unconsciously. And then other times very consciously um, in spiritual and spirituality. So, oh, tell me it, about the know. latter. Uh, I mean, consciously mm -hmm. excluding people. And we're talking about meditation communities, spiritual communities. Yeah. I mean, we have to be willing, I think, for, you know, one of the, the delusions that I think happens in these spiritual communities is that people think that they're really evolved and they don't have biases anymore, uh. right? That they're beyond that. I love all beings. I see this. And in some level, they really do think that, right? But they love all beings, but they're in a demographic in those moments where they're all like a certain age, a certain background. It's very easy to have that feeling when you're in your group per se, right? When everybody looks like you, thinks like you, same background as you, lives by you, has the same philosophy. But when you start adding people into another group, right, you say, well, let's open the door. Let's be more inclusive. Let's have teachers of color. Let's outreach. Then you'll see 
a pushback, right? Where very consciously people become threatened or sad or upset or feel pushed out. So these issues are arising in community all the time. And it's very hard if you already have a group that you've formed to then bring in diversity. Either it's a thought from the beginning and it comes from the ground up. But once you already have a community formed and you already have the norms there and you already have the energy, that group can manifest a kind of unconscious habit, right? And it's like, oh, this is for us. Our retreats are for us. Right. And it doesn't look like the rest of the world. And it takes a little bit of thinking to just be not just go with that because it's easy. Right. It's easy for people to be like, well, this is who comes. Great. But why doesn't it reflect right. the rest of the world? Right. And it, and, and it seems troublesome, maybe all the more troublesome, because we're dealing with in, in the case you're talking about and in my own work, too, we're we're dealing with. Spirituality in general, I mean, we're not promoting a specific religion, at least in the work that I do. And yet you're absolutely right that there is. Well, let me let me ask you, let me put it as a question. Why doesn't meditation erase our innate prejudices? Hmm, I think that that's a really, um, you know, that's a bigger topic. Like, how do we get to enlightenment? And I think the practices that we're doing, because first of all, what what it does, at least, you know, I can speak from the Buddhist tradition a little bit more and also from the mystical and shamanic traditions, is that this path is the path of purification. So it's bringing up things that are stumbling blocks, that are biases. Its job is to pull out those things so that we can overcome them. And I think that's also another diluted way that the West has kind of co-opted spiritual practice. So you see images of people on mountains blissed out, or you see, you know, there's a delusion in that. That's actually not what deep practice looks like. Deep practice looks like tears, frustration, rage coming up, grappling with real issues. You know, on retreats, when I lead retreats, people aren't just sitting there, maybe at the end of the retreat. But, you know, they're often wearing old sweatpants. They've got Kleenex falling out of their pockets and they're troubled, right? They're, they're, they're reckoning with themselves and the life that they live, right? They're coming to terms with that. So, so to me, real practice is getting in touch with the places that we are programmed, the places that we have deep unconscious conditioning, preferences, biases, so I see it as a good thing when it comes up in community, but it also can, depending on how it's handled, it can break apart the community or they can grow from it. Right. And depending on how it's handled, it can, and I would suggest should, break apart the individual that she or he sees the crap that they're carrying around and then they get become mindful of it. And there's, a, I think, a shattering there that allows them ideally to work through it, to, to not let it put blinders on them. And yet at the same time, my experience is maybe that's what's supposed to happen, but that isn't what happens. Are you familiar with a book called Zen and the Art of Archery? <laughs> I've heard of that book. I haven't read right. it. That's, yeah. that's because <laughs> I'm old. So way back when I was studying Buddhism in the Zen tradition, one of the books that we all read, because it was like such an important book, was Zen and the Art of Archery 
by a guy named Harrigal. And it's a it's an autobi- very short autobiographical book about this German guy who goes to Japan to study uh, Zen archery. And at the end of the book, he becomes enlightened. And everyone's like, wow, how cool. And then later on, not in the book, but in his real life, after he becomes, quote, enlightened, he leaves Japan, goes back to Germany, and joins the SS, becomes a Nazi. And it's like, wait, you know, the Buddha becomes a Nazi? How can that happen? How can an enlightened person do that? So I think there's levels of enlightenment, or maybe just sometimes enlightenment is just a catchphrase for papering over the deep work that has to be done. Yeah. You know, and I, I, you know, people's experiences are so unique and and so varied, but I I think a gauge that you can base your, your spiritual growth on is, am I kinder? Do I love more? Is my practice making me more neurotic or more connected? Because there's two ways it can go. We can get more like, oh, I don't like the dirt on the ground. I don't, this, this, I'm sensitive, I'm sensitive, right? We can actually create more anger, aversion, and fear, or we can really start to open up the heart. So I have no idea about that book. Yeah, well, I mean, as I understand Buddhist practice, what it leads to is prajna and karuna, wisdom and compassion. And the two go hand in hand. But that's theory doesn't always happen. And when we see that in countries like Myanmar, where the, the anti-Muslim mm-hmm. efforts are being run by Buddhists, you know, and fueled by, by Buddhist priests. Right. So nationalism, some of these things are just deeper than what a religion at its best can, can root out. But let, let's, let's switch this from this train of thought. And let's take a look at your book, A Fierce Heart, Finding Strength, Courage, and Wisdom in Any Moment. You open the book, or early on in the book, you speak about the great calling, and I'd love to know how you experienced that, what you heard, not just theoretically, but in your own biography. Yeah, well, you know, I love that that title, and it really comes from Joseph Campbell's, you know, stages of right. um, the hero and the heroine's journey, and I just recognize it so much in my experience and others. I think it for me was this, it was just like this deep calling to live differently, you know, we grow up in this culture and everyone has these rules and identities. We think, this is what you need to do. This is how it goes. This is what, you know, success is. And it's just the call to something different. It's the call to something deeper and more real. And usually, um, and how it hit me was when, I think I've had a few moments of that. As a teenager, I would tap into that. And um, I would, you know, I was seeking out teachers and studying psychology. But when um, I was in my early 20s, it hit me in a really big way. And someone left a book on my table by that uh, teacher, Paramahasa Yogananda. Um, And I read it and it was like in that instant, I knew that I was going to live a spiritually based life. And I knew that at the core of it, it was going to be focused around meditation and healing. And it was just like, that was the calling. And then everything else just kind of, follow that. And I was really willing to let everything else go. You have to, you know, on some level have the call and then the answer the call. Those are two different things. <laughs> you got, it's the call you have to answer. I always say. <laughs> right. Right. Sometimes it's a collect call and you might want to pass, but uh, no, you have to yeah. answer the call. So I'm, I'm intrigued that it was autobiography of a yogi that, that turned you yeah. on to this. 
I mean, that, that book is a classic. Um, I don't know how many people read it anymore, but, but it is an incredibly powerful book. And it was clearly for you. So when you read the book, were you already in a Buddhist setting? Or, I mean, did you, you didn't grow up as a Buddhist. Want to fearlessly explore your creative spirit? Join artist Susie K. Edwards for Path of the Butterfly, a weekend workshop at Omega Institute's beautiful campus in Rhinebeck, New York, May 24 through 26. Experiment with a variety of art forms, engage in mindfulness, walking, and silent meditation, and discover a new and free-flowing creative vision. This workshop is for beginners and professional artists. Learn more at eomega.org thrive. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. No, no. In fact, my my mother, who I grew up with, she was a, a really like an atheist in a lot of ways. She hated all religion and was very not that much of a spiritual person, kind of a little bit with like positive psychology. So she did influence me in that direction. Um, but no, I read that book and then I started what that book did was open me up to the path of meditation. And then about a year later, where I was having a crisis, I stumbled upon uh, Jack Cornfield's retreat out in the desert. And it was there that I learned about Buddhism for the first time. I had no idea when I signed up for this longer 10 day retreat. I went just looking for a teacher because I had been practicing meditation on my own for about a year, a little longer. And I didn't feel like I was making progress, especially not like what I was reading in the book. And so I kept thinking, I think I'm doing this wrong. All I do is sit and think about my problems. You know, I'm not, I'm not getting uh, what I have heard about. So I started to think I need instruction. I need a different technique and a different approach. Um, and so I, I was like kind of a miracle, but as we know, nothing ever is, but I stumbled upon that retreat. And then when I connected with Jack Cornfield, he became, he became really like a spiritual father to me. Um, and I did many long years of training with him and I moved up to Northern California and I've been a part of Spirit Rock Teachers Council for many years and involved in that community. Um, so, so that was kind of the doorway. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you were, you were ready. Uh, you know, that's very trite, yes. you know, when the student is ready, that kind of thing. But you're, you're way more advanced than me. It took you a year to realize you needed help. I studied Zen. <laughs> I, I worked for, for, it was like 30 years on the cushions. And I finally called my Zen teacher on the phone one day and I said, you know, I'm, this isn't working. And he goes, yeah. Mm. He says, yeah, I know. It doesn't work. <laughs> that <laughs> was, that idea. That's right. Yeah, that was, exactly. it, it doesn't work. So <laughs> get over it. Go back and sit. So you have a, a quote from Bob Marley in the book, and I love Bob. And I'm, I'm going to read the quote to you. Emancipate yourself from mental slavery. None but ourselves can free our minds. So how do you understand the notion of emancipation? I guess I think when I think of emancipation, I think, I, I think of feeling free in any moment. 
feeling at peace with yourself, your body, the moment, the situation, and extending that feeling, right? So then it meets the next moment. So a moment-to-moment experience of being free, you know, not bound by the thoughts, not bound by the stories, you know, just kind of in the present moment. Mm. I really think of freedom as being in the present moment. And meditation is a methodology for liberation? Yeah, meditation in some way, it's like, you know, for me, meditation is just the practice of presence. You know, it's the practice of it. Really, mindfulness is what we're developing through meditation. And then there's layers and levels that it can go deeper and deeper. But at first, there just needs to be a real focus on the foundations of mindfulness. Am I aware of my thoughts? Am I aware of my body? I think for a lot of people, they try to go so fast on the spiritual path. And they haven't really mastered the first couple foundations, which is mindfulness of the body, living in your body, which can take, you know, a lifetime. Um, so I think we, we have to slow down. I think when people come into meditation, they, they have a lot of ideas and they want to go really fast. And there's a kind of slowing down and, you know, the craving that we bring into our spiritual life is the craving that we have at work. It's the, you know, achievement, wanting, like somehow, like similar to what your teacher said, like, stop trying to get something out of it. Go back to the cushion, you know? Yes and no, right? There can't right. be some more guidance, right. but in its various essentials, meditation is the practice of being awake moment by moment. It's a training. We're trying to train the mind to pay attention, which is, doesn't want to. We're, we're, we're sort of battling in a way. Right. <laughs> like, we're so, it doesn't want to be there. We're so yeah. easily distracted. So how does, yeah. how does paying attention tie in with your work in Lotus Vine Journeys, where you seem to blend ayahuasca, shamanic practices with your Buddhist meditation? I, I would have thought, you know, meditation and, and, you know, taking ayahuasca were two very different things. How do you right. weave them together? Yeah. And that's a really important question. Well, first of all, I actually worked with ayahuasca and I still do is mainly a treatment. It's a sacred medicine to help people with trauma. And we're learning a lot how actually trauma keeps you from being able to be in the present moment. And that's what happened to me after years and years and years of practice. I kind of was at this one retreat and I fell totally apart in a way like shattered. And I didn't understand that it was almost this PTSD, like I disassociated and nobody could really help me. And I was already a teacher at that point. And so I had this pressure of like, you got to figure this out, you know, go back to the meditation hall. And what I realized was that how do I work with the energies that keep me disassociated, that keep me running from myself? I keep me habitually in fear, in terror. Why do I keep reliving this stuff? What, why are these triggers still here? So I got interested and introduced to it by a clinical psychologist friend of mine. And she said, Spring, I think you're having these traumatic episodes. The retreat kind of pulled up what it normally does, which is a kind of anything that's unconscious, that's tangled in the system. It pulls it up. It pulls up trauma. We know way more now than we did 12 years ago. We're like light years ahead as teachers when it comes to trauma, understanding how meditation and trauma work and um, 
but back then there wasn't a lot of understanding. And so I ended up going to the jungle and working with shamans in order to heal these traumatic things that had happened that were healed on the mental level, but they were not healed on the body level and the emotional body level and like the vibrational body level. They were still deeply imprinted in my system. Um, And so that's why I started working with ayahuasca. And then I noticed that it was a huge improvement in my meditation. My heart was calm. I was still, I'd released all these energies. And for people who maybe are learning about what ayahuasca is, it helps to pull out these painful energies out of the body. And that's a really short, you know, if someone wants to look up more, they can, you know, look at some of my videos online or read about it on our website. But it is a way to help. So when people do ayahuasca or they go and they they heal themselves from all this trauma, they naturally want to be present in their body because there's reasons that we don't want to be there. There's reasons why we flee our body. And unless these are addressed, we'll never become a mindful, uh, right. you know, community. So, so these are some of the things I was wanting to address. Yeah, I, I've, I've done some reading. That's all I've done. And, and everything you say, I mean, I agree with what you're saying, but it's all hearsay to me. I've never experienced ayahuasca. And, and the right. thing that really keeps me from doing that is vomiting. Right. No, I'm not going to vomit. This is not, this is not part of my spiritual practice. Well, the sacred (laughs) purge, we call it, we call it letting go or, you know, and, and like, and really, um, you know, at moments in those ceremonies, um, yeah, it could be moments where we have to release energy, build up of energy. It could be toxins in the body from GMO food and chemicals and lead and, just alcohol and drugs and prescription, you know, people, it, 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 it does pull out. So, so at moments there are um, episodes where we call it the purge and, but usually people start to love it. They get terrified. And then after a while they're like, well, let's get it. Because usually you feel <laughs> amazing. Uh, well, I, I need a, I need a, a, a shamanic drug that like gives you diarrhea. I'm, I'm easier with that. Then, then vomiting. Oh, it, it does, does that, that too. Yeah, Great. Yeah, we're really, we're really <laughs> selling this experience to people now. <laughs> but wow. that's just one level of the, the journey. It's much more powerful. And, and I'll be making a whole bunch of new content, trying to explain to people. And also for, for viewers, I understand that this might seem like drug use or promoting, you know, and I, I understand like I've been on the hot seat around this issue in the Buddhist community and the elders that I work with are like, wait, we take, you know, oaths and we have vows and we do precepts and one of them is non-intoxicants. And, but this is in a whole nother level. And I think the research that's coming out around all of these plans for those who are ready and want to move a little bit faster, accelerate their healing process in the service of being present then it can be really helpful. Yeah, I think we're getting a much deeper understanding of how these plant-based medicines work yes. than we had in the 60s, let's say. I mean, you've got Michael Pollan's book on uh, Change Your Mind yep. and, and all of that. Mm-hmm. So we are just about out of time. And I want to end the conversation with the way 
you end the book. You have this beautiful poem prayer at the end. So if you could read us out in a sense by re- yeah, reading sure. that. Thanks. Yes. Thank you. This is from the book, A Fierce Heart, Finding Strength, Courage, and Wisdom in Any Moment. So my closing prayer, for the benefit of all beings and for all life on earth, please stand up. For the seven generations from now, please stand up. For our ancestors and all those who have come before us, I ask you to please stand up. For all those without a voice, abused, lost, and neglected, I ask you to please stand up. For the indigenous earth keepers and protectors, I ask you to please stand up. For all those who have died defending the sacred, I ask you to please stand up. In the name of wisdom and infinite compassion, together with a fierce heart, we will stand up. Our guest today, Spring Washam, is the author of A Fierce Heart, Finding Strength, Courage, and Wisdom in Any Moment. You can learn more about her work at springwasham.com. An essay by Spring appears in the January-February issue of Spirituality and Health magazine. Spring, thanks so much for talking with us on Essential Conversations. Oh, thank you for inviting me. It was an honor. Well, it was a pleasure. Thanks. Essential Conversations with Rabbi Rami is the bi-weekly podcast of Spirituality and Health magazine. If you like Essential Conversations, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts and subscribe to the show on your preferred podcast app. You can also follow me on Spirituality and Health's website, where I now write a regular column called Roadside Musings, and on my new podcast, Conversations on the Egg. And don't forget to subscribe to the print magazine as well. Essential Conversations is produced by Ezra Baker Truppiano, and our executive producer is Catherine Drury-Wagner. I'm Rabbi Rami. Thanks for listening. Intuition is our spiritual GPS and the single best tool that we have for navigating our lives. I'm Victoria Shaw, and on my Intuitive Connection podcast, I will share with you the ways to connect with your intuition and awaken the gifts of your soul. In each episode, I'll draw on my own intuitive gifts and my training as an Ivy League trained counselor and psychologist to help support you in reaching your highest potential. Start listening now on Mind Body Spirit FM Podcast Network or wherever you find your podcasts.